0: What's up, Active Lifers? Welcome back to the Active Life Podcast. I'm Dr. Sean Pastuch. I'm your host. And I got to tell you, I've been nervously excited, fanboying for the guests on the show today. It's Jen and Will Harris, the owner and daughter of White Oak Pastures. White Oak Pastures is the ranch farm that I was first introduced to regenerative land management about four years ago and following their social media account has changed the way that I eat. It's changed the way that I think about food. It's changed the way that I think in general to be able to interview Jen and will on the podcast was an absolute pleasure. It was a privilege. It was a learning experience. And I'm excited for you to be able to hear from them just how important the way that we think about food, the way that we think about what we think about is to our current way of life and our future way of life. Please remember, as you listen to this podcast, if you're finding it valuable, please head to wherever you're listening and leave a review. If you're interested in a free coaching call with me. Take that review, take a screenshot, send it to me at Dr. Sean Pastuch on Instagram, and you are entered in a contest to win a free coaching call, of which I give one away every week. If you've already entered, you're still on the running, you just haven't won yet. Let's get to the show. Jenny and Will Harris. Welcome to the Active Life Podcast.
1: Thank y'all for
2: having us. Yeah, appreciate being here.
0: I'll tell you what, I've, I've interviewed some really influential and, and sought after people. I haven't been as excited for an interview as I am for this one in a long time. I'm really... Go ahead. You need to raise your sights. You need to shoot higher. <laughs> <laughs> you know. You know what? The reason why I'm so excited to interview you all is because I believe that your, your business and what you stand for is so purpose-driven and so important for more than just you to make a good living and a few people to learn a, a few things. It has ramifications for the way that we all live today and how we're going to do it in 50 years and 100 years from now. And I think it's, it's critical people hear what you have to say.
2: Well, this is a, uh, a very generational business. We take a very generational view of what we do, you know, the, the quarterly report, the annual report, you know, the, generally accepted uh, accounting practices don't fit what we do very well here.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I believe that, and we'll, we'll get into that for sure. Before we get into any questions, I want to share something with you that I, I wanted to make sure we got on recording. So I listened to your Joe Rogan podcast, and I've been following you guys for like four years. I talked to Jenny maybe two and a half, three years ago for the first time first thing you need to know is i was introduced to the concept of regenerative farming through you the first time i ever heard about regenerative farming was through you regenerative agriculture white oak pastures first time my first entree into experiencing it was your Iberico bacon. Which is from another planet. It's not from Iberico, Spain, or wherever those, cows, those, uh, those pigs come from. That is something that if, if, if you're listening and you haven't ordered Iberico bacon from White Oak Pastures, it, is, it was life-changing bacon. It's ruined bacon for me. <laughs> That's good. That's yes. a good thing. Yes. Uh, I rendered off maybe like a pint of fat to use for cooking grease after that from one, from one package.
1: And you're still using it three years
0: later. Yeah, right. (laughs) Uh, Well, but the other thing is, I heard you tell Joe Rogan that your goal is that ultimately people don't need to come to white oak pastures to get regenerative produce, regenerative meat, that they will be able to find somebody local to them who is providing that kind of service. And I want to make sure that you know after experiencing what you serve, I was able to find somebody local who does a similar thing. I'm not suggesting it's the same who has shared with me that he's been influenced by you and what you do, which is a big part of what led him to do things the way he does them right here on Long Island. So the impact that you are looking for is happening beyond any shadow of a doubt. It's real.
2: Well, that's very heartening to hear uh, I mean, the fact is, we we started down the road earlier than most. You know, we 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 started uh, practicing what we now call regenerative land management twenty five or so years ago when that was not a word yet. Uh, uh, and, and then the what you said about the uh, you know, that we want you to find a local sub- supplier uh, harkens back to what I just told you about the. The uh, What we do is not normal business uh, management. We're not trying to grow this company and grow it and grow it and grow it the way uh, we're led to believe you're supposed to run a company. Uh, we, we want to be local. This business is about as big as we want it to be. And we're happy to be more and more local. What we do is not highly scalable is highly replicatable so there can be more and more and more of us and we think that's the way it ought to be
0: do you think your disinterest in seeking scale for the sake of scale has led to some of your success
2: that's an interesting way of looking at it uh, but but yeah i think that there is you know there's an uh, a tremendous amount of inherent risk in what we do it's a we're in a very, very risky space. And it would be even more risky if we were trying to grow it, blow it up bigger and bigger and bigger. So from that perspective, yeah, yeah, I think so. I think we for a long time we've known who we wanted to be. And that that and that's that is not a big multinational publicly traded company. Nor do we want to are we are we trying to put together a package to sell to a big multinational publicly traded company. and We are trying to perpetuate a uh, family business, a generational family business.
0: What is the risk you're speaking about there?
2: So let's compare what we do to the industrial commodity farming I used to do and my neighbors still do both of them what i do and what they do are very 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 have a lot very capital intensive takes a lot of money to be in this business land and whatnot uh, in both cases what we do in the industrial model it's it's very low return that's just inherent that's the way it is. But what we do is very very risky compared to what industrial farmers do a lot of things have uh, occurred been brought forth that take risk out of industrial farming. There's federally subsidized crop insurance, which we, we participate in, it's just not much. Not much we can do with that. There's uh, uh, an arsenal of sides pesticides to kill whatever pest is problematic. There's irrigation technology to, to put water to prevent against drought. And, and, there, and so many costs are externalized. You know, uh, once, uh, when, when my neighbors raise a load of cattle and sell them, it's over. It's gone. You know, when we, when we, we own them all the way to the consumer. So what do you call our recall? You know, tremendous high risk. I, I ain't going on, on about externalized risk that we, we take, we internalize, they externalize. You know, the, you've always heard about the risk-to-reward ratio. Mm-hmm. High risk, high reward. Well, this is high risk without the high reward. And that, that's why it's a riskier
0: business. So why do it that way? Before you answer, I'm happy you do. I'm happy other farmers, other land management companies, if you will, are, are following your lead. But why do it that way if the risk is so much higher and the reward is no better?
2: Well, keep in mind that I did it the other way for 20 years. You know, I was a very industrial, monocultural cattleman for 20 years. And uh, the, you know, what was really titillating to me in my 20s when I got out of the University of Georgia College of Agriculture was uh, increasingly distasteful to me as I got into my 40s. And I just, uh, I guess I became increasingly uh, aware of the uh, unintended consequences of that production model. So I started moving away from it. There there was no real good uh, business plan or production plan about this is how it's going to look in five years, 10 years. I didn't do that. I I just quit doing things that were displeasing to me. And this is where it led us.
0: Jenny, do you remember that time?
1: Uh, so dad started transitioning the farm in the mid nineties. So I was born in 86. So those, uh, you know, first ground level stop using chemical fertilizer, uh, you know, on the land stop using you know confinement feeding and growth hormones. Those would have happened in the mid nineties when I was 10. And I, uh, I was your average 10 year old, 10 year old. I was, you know, uh, enjoyed being with my dad, you know, we are, you know, best friends back then, still today. Um, But I do remember our farm was beautiful. We used copious quantities of chemical fertilizer. We, you know, overseeded every year with, you know, cool season annuals and uh, man, it was so green. It was just every year was uniform, no weeds, beautiful. And then when dad gave up chemical fertilizer, it was ugly. I mean, you know, uh, just the nastiest, driest, brownest, ugliest farm you've ever seen. And I, you know, didn't, it didn't impact me any because I was a 10 year old and all I wanted to do was spend time with my dad. And that was happening, whether the grass was green or the grass was brown, but I do remember it being uh, incredibly ugly.
0: Will, was there any fear for you when your farm went from being this lush, green property to being a place that was ugly as Jenny describes it
2: Oh, uh, well fear I lost I stress stressed and fear it just was unpleasant you know I, I, I thought I knew where we were going uh so not 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 really so much the uh the only real fear or stress that, that there's been uh uh a palpable thing for me is we, we had no, I never borrowed money prior to that mid nineties. We were blessed to inherit a, a nice paid for farm and some other assets and, and uh, just didn't have that stress. We made, and we made money every year. You know, we, we weren't rich people, but you know, we paid taxes every year. We never, years when cattle were cheap, We didn't make too much. We made some years when cattle were, the market was high. We did well. So I was in, uh, I was very aware of my uh, declining uh, earnings, but uh, the the fact the land didn't look good. I I knew where I was going with that. I I, I knew it was like taking a step back, take, take two steps forward.
0: What I'm hearing you talk about is, is a set of values that no matter what the certainty of profit would be, you know, you're not getting government subsidy on soy and corn now, right? So you could have gone a more certain route, but it sounds to me like the unintended downstream negative effects were too great on the outside of the Harris family values list to tolerate. And so you took what would be considered a riskier path to do something that you felt was of higher integrity and more in line with what you believed was important. Is, is that accurate?
2: Well, you were waxing a little too noble. on me there. <laughs> uh, I appreciate the kind of words, but uh, first of all, let me say that I think the only place I'm a hypocrite is with reference to government papers. I do accept government papers. I have friends that won't do it on, on, uh, uh just moral grounds, but I do. I don't get nearly as much as more heavily subsidized crops like cotton, peanuts, rice, sugar, that, that kind of thing. But I, I do accept them. I think it'd be good. I think it'd be a good idea if we didn't have them anymore. As long as they issue them, I will compete with for them. Sure. So that that just just to be clear on that, and I don't want to be a hypocrite here. Uh, as far as the uh, the rest of it. You know, I, from, from an, the, the first thing that really uh, I think that really started to bother me was the animal welfare. I just didn't think I was doing that as well as I should have. What had previously been perfectly acceptable to me uh, became less acceptable to me. So I started changing that uh, very quickly. The land aspect of it became an issue. And I won't to be too noble, but you know, that was my animals and my land, and I was doing the best thing I could do you know, for my family and our land and our animals. So I, you know, I'm, I'm uh, I've never been, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I've never been, an issue for, to, to, for me is never been trying to save the world. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm just not that guy. I'm trying to save white oak pastures, mm-hmm. not, not the world. I hope the world gets saved and if, uh, if if sharing the things we've figured out over the last 25 years will help do that, I'm happy to do it. But I count it as a success when I create a good, financially sound, safe, stable place for me and my people. And when I say people, I used to, I, I used to just mean family. We've got 180 employees who whose uh, happiness means a lot to me as well. So my job is to to provide for them. And if enough of us do that, the
0: world might get saved. When you make a decision like that, what I'm hearing you say is you thought this would be a more profitable way for you to go. This is a more sustainable way for you to go. It It wasn't a the world needs someone to show them how it's done this is going to be the way it goes in the future. Is That that's that sounds more accurate, and it ended up being what we now hope more people will adopt. Is that more accurate?
2: Yeah, I mean, you can bet your butt 25 years ago a 40-year-old Will Harris didn't walk outside and say, mm-hmm. you know, I believe the climate's changing, and I think I can probably help mitigate that by changing the way I manage my land. That didn't happen. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't want outside and didn't like what I was doing as much as I used to.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So I started, I literally quit doing things I didn't want to do anymore. I quit shipping uh, 48,000 pound loads of cattle to Nebraska. I didn't like it, but I didn't do it anymore. Uh, I quit using chemical fertilizer and pesticides and hormone implants. And, and I, I didn't do it all at one time. I, I would focus on something I didn't like and I would figure out how to do with that. And 25 years later, we're not using uh, that stuff.
0: So piece by piece, it was, this is the thing that's most in need of change. I'm going to change this and nothing else yet. Let's just change this one thing so that we have the sustainability of the other things. And then when that thing becomes sustainable, it's, let's change the next thing and the next thing. And then over 25 years, it becomes a totally different place. Yes?
2: Yeah, yeah that's, pretty, that's pretty accurate. You know, so, so these the, the what we're talking about here primarily is the misuse of technology. Mm-hmm. We, my father's generation, my generation – uh, applied the factory model, this linear factory model, to this cyclical biome that we call it as a farm. And when we did, there were unintended consequences. There were very obvious benefits. That's what we were seeking when we invested in that technology chemical fertilizer, pesticides, or hormone implants, whatever. But there were unintended consequences. And the unintended consequences were not very obvious, and it took a long time. They were unnoticed. We weren't aware of them. It took a long time for them to show up, and and I, I think I probably uh, focused on them earlier than most. Uh, you know, a lot of people still don't focus on. Them. A lot of people still feel like it's just fine to use these technologies. In fact, most people, and and you know, I just don't want to.
0: Are you familiar, are either of you familiar with the, the Japanese rule of family and business that the third generation must not inherit the business? Okay.
2: Well, I don't know about Japanese, but uh I'm about as far from Japanese, I guess, as you can be. And I, yeah. all my life, I've been told the first generation makes it, the second generation keeps it, and the third generation loses it.
0: Right. That's that's. I've seen
2: it happen. You know, I've seen it happen over and over and over again in my
0: lifetime. And, and and that's that's part of the philosophy. The philosophy is the first generation does all the work from zero to something. The second generation saw the first generation struggle. They inherited something that had some potential, and they grew it to something that the third generation never had to see all that hard work go into. And so they neglect how much hard work it takes to keep it and continue growing it you're going to be Will. you're the fourth or the fifth generation. I'm the fourth. So you're the fourth and Jenny, you're, you're the fifth. Uh, was there any, Will? I guess the first question is for you and the second will be for you, Jenny. Was there any stress of legacy of what we used to be in the decision to change the farm over? And while Will is answering that, Jenny, the question I would love for you to ponder is, um, is there a burden of legacy that you feel like you need to carry on and so well I'd love to hear from you first was there any this is how we did it for three generations I'm I'm changing so,
2: everything uh, I think we're yeah I mean I think it's a very complex question and from a from a uh, practice perspective, the first two generations of my family operated very similar to what I'm doing now A lot of focused on the land, the animals, the community, first two generations, my great granddad and my granddad. Uh, My dad is the one that industrialized, commoditized, centralized, and he was very successful with it. And all I wanted to do was do what my dad did. So I went to the University of Georgia, major animal science, came home and further industrialized, commoditized, centralized. And then I had the Uh, I don't think epiphany is the right word. I had the the change of heart about what was important to me. So uh, that's that's kind of one thing. From the economic perspective, uh, you know, theoretically, my dad should have been the generation to lose it based on our... Uh One, two, three. I think the Great Depression caused a real reset. So my... My dad's family, the Harrisons, were not rich people, but they were more uh, big fish in this little pond than, say, my mother's family. They were—they uh, had a nice farm and store and land, and, and they base uh, unusual uh, that they didn't lose it. Most people lost the farm during the depression. My family held on to it, and it really caused my dad to double down in the way he lived his life, he was a very extremely driven person in terms of accumulating wealth, and especially liquidity. And then, uh, uh, so I'm I'm kind of the second generation, even though I'm from with that mindset, if that makes it sense. Hey, my dad was a very driven man. I think we're, we're pretty driven as well. And I say it one more thing. So my dad was an only child born in 1920. I'm an only child born in 1954. That's very unusual for farm families of those generations.
3: Uh-huh.
2: And uh, I think that, and at the very least, what it did for me is, when I got ready to transition over, I didn't have to talk to anybody about it. You know, my 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 dad uh, was living, but he had dementia, so he was out of the out of the picture I don't have any siblings Uh, my wife is a saint but she's never been involved in the business much she's a wife school teacher mother Uh so I I, my decisions were my own and I don't have to convince anybody I appreciate
1: that yeah and I'll add uh, you know I think you used the word burden and I don't think neither my sister or I feel that way it's it's you know, a responsibility to continue to, uh, you know, to to do the things we're doing in as good of a way as we possibly can. But Burden, you know, we both, my sister and I had the opportunity and sort of my, my dad insisted that we move away and work for someone else. And so we both had to work off the farm for at least a year before we returned home to work on the farm and we both did that, and it was, uh, you know, his words exactly were he wanted to create an opportunity, not an obligation, and so working off the farm and us choosing to return home when we did, uh, you know, helped instill the fact that this is an opportunity for my sister, my sister's family, myself, and my family, uh, and, and so I also will say that you know, personalities play a big role in how we run our businesses. You know, dad's personality is, you know, not afraid of risk. I don't know that he's actually afraid of anything. Um, and I think that the pendulum swings, you know, one way and the other generation, it, it will probably swing the other way. You know, I'm far more calculated, far more, you know, risk adverse, not to the extent that I'm I'm afraid of risk, but my threshold of enjoying life while also incurring tremendously risk is very different than his. So I think that just as uh, you know the way his father ran the farm in a in a specific way, you know he he overcorrected in another direction, and likely Jody and I, you know my sister, will overcorrect in another direction, and then. You know, sh- should we be so blessed to have anything left for our children to take over when Jody and I are uh, you know, ready to to turn the reins over, You know, they'll probably overcorrect to a certain extent. So I think it's you know a, a decent amount of this, or at least it has been in our family.
0: Well, that keeps balance, right?
1: Well, something's got to do it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so I think it would be really valuable for you guys to explain to to the audience what – let me, let me ask this differently. You raise a cow and it raises to about what? 1,200, 1,300 pounds? Is that about right what you get to? And that means there's 1,200, 1,300 pounds of meat minus the bones, the the organ, like whatever else is not going to be processed and sold to someone to eat. And I know organs get eaten. I'm not, you know, and bones for soups and all that kind of stuff. A traditional cow grown in, in a traditional way with, you know, a hormone pellet and all that kind of stuff. What do they weigh?
2: Uh, probably thirteen hundred and fifty pounds would be a good average, and ours would actually be more like uh, eleven hundred and fifty pounds on the average.
0: Okay, so they end up weighing a similar amount by the time they're done. Yes.
2: Yeah, they, the others would be, the industry would be a couple hundred pounds heavier on the hoof.
0: Is the time to wait the same? Like, meaning is does. Go ahead. You're shaking your head now. It
2: takes us two years to to raise a eleven hundred pound animal. And what does it take it normally? It takes uh, an industrial feedlot animal and the feedlot can be, you know, eighteen months old, maybe maybe a little less, depends on the circumstances.
0: And how is the meat that you would get from that kind of uh agriculture different than the kind of meat we would get from you? What I, what, so, I, what I what I, what I what I want people to be able to understand is there's all this talk about red meat is bad for you. Red meat will give you this. Red meat will give you that. It's gonna give you a heart attack. Stop eating it. All 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 these things. And what I tell people, I was at a Japanese restaurant the other night, back to Japan. I don't know how we got there twice, but
3: <laughs>
0: I, I I got a steak. And this woman says, Oh, you're not you're not worried about the red meat. And I said, Well, this is a rare occasion for me that I would get steak outside of my own home. And the steak I'm eating at my home is a completely different animal than the steak that I'm eating tonight. And so to me, this is like getting ice cream as compared to eating steak. And she didn't, I went through about a 20 minute conversation with her. I would love for you to share some of the differences so people can hear it from you.
2: You go, you go first, I'll add. So, uh, the, the, the beef would be very different and, and and you know, there's a lot of people that enjoy feedlot like beef, finished beef, grain finished beef more than ours. Uh, uh, ours would be uh, have less intramuscular fat, a little fat granules uh, in the inside the muscle. Probably have uh, two tenths of an inch of back fat instead of three quarters of an inch of back fat. Uh, pro- probably the uh, almost certainly the grain fed beef would be more tender. I think the, uh, and and the flavor is very different. And I truly think that's absolutely in the uh, mouth of the beholder. I mean, I think that some people enjoy feedlot beef better. Some people would enjoy uh, grass-fed beef better. Um, But it it embarrasses me when I hear farmers, grass-fed farmers say, my grass-fed beef is as tender as any grain-fed beef you've ever had. Well, no, it's probably not. It's really probably not. You know, know, the uh, the, I would, you know, if you if you said the the ground beef from uh, grass fed is better, I'd I'd say, well, I would, I personally I'd agree with that. Somebody else might not, but I would. The braising cuts from grass fed versus grain fed, uh, some people might say that's better, and I I personally would agree with that. But the New York strip steak from my animals versus a female animal, there's going to be more tender. I think that my, mine is outwardly tender, but not as tender. Uh, but, you know, another way of looking at it is, what, what 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 do you enjoy the flavor of free trade coffee better than coffee that's not free trade coffee?
0: I don't know that I would know the difference. Well, I don't think you would. And...
2: You know, when we when we uh, sing praises, attributes, our product, what we talk about is the the impact on the land and the environment. And ours is better. It's a lot better. And I could debate that with anybody. If you're talking about the uh, welfare of the animals for, for ours versus industrial, ours is better. And it's a lot better. And I could debate that with anybody. And we talk about the economic impact on rural America, ours is better, a lot better. And I can debate that with anybody. You know, I have opinions on the culinary side of it, which is what you're talking about food safety, nutrient density, nutrition, da, da, da. But that's not my skill set. My skill set is animal welfare, the land. In the community, so uh, and you know, there are nutritionists that will make my case for me on nutrition and safety and all that, and there are other uh, chefs that will make my case for me on the culinary side. So I, I just I, I I only talk about the three very narrow areas in which I am expert.
1: I don't have anything to add. That was very
0: well said. I like it. You thought, you thought dad was going to come up short and you, you meant, were, you were ready. Like, I'll
2: round this out. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> and, she, and she can. I mean, you, you got both of us. It can be an either or thing. She, sure. She, sure. We, we've talked, we've talked about it so much that, that we, we, we seldom have a conflict with our message. You know.
0: Never. You know. Well, I think it's beautiful. I mean, I have, like I said earlier, I have three daughters. And and you know, it's it's inspiring to see the way that that you guys work together, and that there's something there that goes beyond just I do this because it's my dad's farm and I got to be here. It's it's the opportunity instead of the obligation. I thought that was really well said. I will speak to the the flavor and the tenderness of the meat. I'll 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 corroborate your story, if you will. Um, a New York strip, even a ribeye, that is from a grass fed, grass finished, pasture raised, humanely you know, process, all that kind of stuff, that's going to be a cut of meat that I believe needs a different set of skill to cook to create the tenderness and the flavor that you want if you're used to conventional beef. And I also agree with you. Somebody who grew up eating conventional beef may prefer it to a grass-fed, grass-finished, pasture-raised animal. Where I would be really curious is once somebody understood the health of the animal that they were eating, the life of the animal that they were eating, the death of the animal that they were eating, and the reason why the meat that they're eating from the feedlot is more tender, if you will, than the meat from a grass-fed animal, which one they would prefer. And I think that some of that is an acquired taste, and you know, an acquired texture to taste, if you will, and some of it is is knowledge of, of what's going in their mouth. So why is a grass fed animal less fatty? Why is there less intermuscular fat than there would be on a cattle lot animal?
1: So in a, a production system like ours, the animal would graze all day. You know, there'd be, uh, you know, they'd be on pasture walking to and from water a couple of times a day. Uh, so lots of exercise versus a, a grain finished animal where they would live a pretty sedentary lifestyle. The feed, you know, artificial feed would be brought in to them, uh, delivered a couple of times a day, there would be very little exercise. And so it's, Basically, the difference between an athlete who gets plenty of exercise versus a couch potato who gets no exercise.
0: So this this goes to where we can start to get confused with marketing through greenwashing and things along those lines, Uh, because there are you can buy a piece of beef that says grass fed, but if it wasn't grass finished, it's not the same animal. You can get grass uh, beef that was grass fed. That wasn't walking around. That was sitting in a feedlot where they basically gave it hay, right? So, how does somebody know what they're getting?
2: That is that really the hard and unfortunate point to a truth that you own there. <clears throat> the fact is, the fact is that the USDA food labeling laws are, are, are I, I think they're uh, intentionally misleading you know you to the extreme case is you can buy beef that's a uh, product of the usa that was raised in uruguay or australia or uh new zealand and a number of other places product of the usa proudly that's just the way the usda has written their food rules uh labeling rules uh so it it's really sad, but the, for us consumers to know what they're getting, they've got to go to the trouble of knowing who their farmer is. And it's a and People don't have the bandwidth for that. And we, we, I think that uh, you mentioned greenwashing. These uh, big multinational companies talking about their product uh, so that it sounds like ours. When I say, I, was, I don't just mean White Oak Passage, I mean, those of us who are doing it correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that it, that's, that's, that's what always be that way. I don't think you'll ever be able to go to the store and read the label and know what you're buying. Uh, I, I have come to have similar feelings about certifications. I used to be very uh, pro certification, but uh there now there's such low-hanging fruit out there that the consumers is hopelessly confused. I, I'm confused by them. Uh-huh. I, mean, I do it for a living. So, uh, you know, knowing your farm, and it would be great if you could visit the farm and see what they're doing. A lot of times you can't. But, you know, with social media, you can pretty much see what people are, are doing. And if you know that you could go to that farm anytime you wanted to mm-hmm. and there are probably other people out there on that farm right now. I bet you there's a dozen people. At least a dozen people on this farm right now and on a Tuesday. Uh,
1: that are not employees.
2: <laughs> yeah. Visitors. But there's probably a lot more than uh, <laughs> there a dozen people that are here just to look. You know, uh, we've got cabins they rent and restaurant to eat and an RV park and stuff. We, we try to bait them up and make it, you know, give tours and horseback right. We, we want to, to bring people here so they can get the immersion and see. And, uh, uh, you know, a small percentage of them will do it, but those, that small percentage can give uh, confidence to many, many more that just just follow us on social
0: media. One of the things I told you earlier, uh, I've sourced a regenerative agriculture uh, supplier for my for my beef and for my everything I can get my hands on that I'm eating is either coming from a garden in my backyard uh, or a farm I can get to locally or a rancher uh, and and ideally we're we're really just supplementing with stuff in between. Is there a registry that people? Because I don't know this either, and and it feels so difficult to find quality sourcing of things. Is there a registry where people can go and find a local farm near them that does similar practices to what y'all are doing down in Bluffton?
2: Uh, I, I, so I saw that. And you can tell. So there are registries like uh, eatwild.com. And
1: yeah, that's, that was
2: the one I was going to mention. Yeah, eatwild.com? Eatwild.com. Eat and there's some others. I don't like, off the top of my head. I don't recall the names. And Those are good starting points,
3: mm-hmm.
2: but the folks from ewile.com don't come out and audit. I mean, they, they who's going to pay for that? And the the people who come out and audit come out once every 15 months and audit. And you know, it's it, uh, <clears throat> I, th- I thought that uh, label or uh, not like that, uh, certification was going to really be a great thing for us because. I, then we wouldn't have to educate people anymore. We just have the, the seal on there, and it's a done deal. But there, there, are too many seals, and some of them are meaningless. You know, some of them are very, very low hanging fruit. You know, so I, I think I think you got to come up with the bandwidth to, to know who you're dealing with.
0: Yeah, one of the things that made me want to choose the farm that I get my beef from is that he invited me out to the farm. That was one of the first things that Stephen who's the, the rancher who we, we purchased from. He said, look, I, before I sell you anything, there's no refunds on it. So I want to send you a piece, make sure you like eating this kind of meat. Cause it's not like the meat you buy at the grocery store. I like the meat. Then he says, if you'd like, you're welcome to come out to the farm, see how we raise the animals, see where they graze. I'll take you all the way to the slaughterhouse if you'd like. And for me, that gave me a lot of peace of mind that this guy's not hiding anything from me. Is it imposing if somebody wants to buy from a farm that they actually reach out to that farm and ask if they can come on site?
1: Not at all. We, we appreciate that. We, we, we've gone to really great lengths to build uh, part of the farm experience into our uh, you know online customer's journey. So you know, it, with our marketing, we are uh, constantly reminding people and incentivizing them to come pick up their, their order as opposed to us shipping it to them. We, we desperately want that because we believe that once people see it, they, uh, they become better customers, not just of ours, but for this movement as a whole.
0: Do you? I know you can't speak for other farmers. Do you believe other farmers feel the same way?
1: Uh, I think that's a mixed bag. Uh, I think we're blessed to have the um, infrastructure and ability to host people, you know with cabins and you know s- you know staff that can you know guide tours and you know that sort of thing. we can handle it. you know there was a time where uh, even for us, when people wanted to come and see what we were doing, you know we were, we were annoyed, not because we didn't want to show him what we were doing, but because it was on you know him, and then you know he downloaded it to me, and then I downloaded it to you know somebody. You know, it it was not part of the business. So I I will say that uh, you know uh, you know farmers need to make it a priority. But that being said, not all farmers can make it a priority right this minute.
2: So, so <clears throat> the, the, the the shield and so on we got against greenwashing is transparency and authenticity <clears throat> and you got to show people. And, then, you know, Jenny mentioned the, the things we put in to accommodate people. It, it was a great investment with no return. I mean, we still don't make money on our tourism component, but it's the only advertising we do. Mm-hmm. We don't, we don't take ads out and, Publications and radio, TV. You know, we accommodate people and invite them to come. We, we seldom have a person visit the farm that we can't make a customer custom out of. But I don't know how to start making a customer out of them if I can't get them here. I mean,
0: I, when did you start letting people come to the farm?
1: Uh, like early two thousands, dad was giving tours of our own farm processing plant before we were actually processing. When there was a concrete slab, he would walk people through there was, you know, it wasn't even walled up yet.
0: The reason I asked that question is, uh, I imagine it's an investment you made with no measurable return. You can't, you can't tie anything to that investment, but I have to believe that a big part of the reason why we're talking today. A big part of the reason why you talked to Joe Rogan a few weeks ago is because you've been so transparent with what you're doing that word started to spread. And as that word starts to spread, more people come out and look. Other people don't need to come out and look. They trust the person who went out and looked and they start buying and they start talking about it. And I think that, do you, do you attribute some of your, your growth to that or has there been no real substantive growth since the early 2000s?
2: Yeah, I, again, we we don't do any marketing other than show people what we're doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, we 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 can't afford to compete with these big multinational companies in uh, hiring smart people to come up with clever uh, advertisements of this is what we got. Uh, but uh, we we won't fight the battle; we win. And the bottom we can win is come on, I'll show you mine. Let them show you
0: Mm theirs. I love it. There's a good lesson in there for, for me. And frankly, for anybody who's listening, who owns a business, we're in the process of opening our, our very first brick and mortar flagship location for our business. And I'm finding so many commonalities to what you do because it's counterculture to what our industry has been doing for so long. And there is a, a lot of what I would call, um, well, just blindness of people who would say, we do something just like that. I'm like, well, well, yeah, we both grow an eggplant, but that's about the only thing that is similar, right? That's the only thing that's that's like about the two things that we're doing. If I was to, to turn it into a metaphor. So valuable lessons. I'm just, I'm just talking to myself right now. I had a conversation with a woman on the, on the boardwalk here. I live by the beach and this is a woman was trying to sell me on the idea that there is a great genocide that no one is paying attention to. And it's, it's the killing of animals for human consumption before, before you, I want to, I want I want to get to the end and then you can respond.
1: Tell me more. <laughs> yeah. Well,
0: it, 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 yeah, uh, I happened to be that I wasn't in a good mood that day. So I was down for the fight. But uh, her thing was, you know, we, we should be able to sustain ourselves on, on fruits and vegetables alone. So we got into the conversation of how much acreage does the average person need? And look at these high-rise buildings. what are these people supposed to do? They're supposed to move? All of those conversations. I talked to her about the animals that get killed as the trowel pulls through, as the, as the tractor tears up for monocropping, and that you need monocropping to sustain that way. What I wouldn't have been ready to discuss with her is if she said to me well, the way that you eat, if you want to eat from all regenerative land management, is also not sustainable. I wouldn't have known where that conversation goes. If everybody chose to do what you do, would we have enough food for everybody?
1: So I'll kick this off for dad. Um, you know, that, that seems to be a, a really hot Uh, a hot conversation and one that he's got a really great answer to which he'll give in a minute but I'll I'll answer the other question which is can we continue to operate as we are currently operating with our industrial agriculture farming mechanisms you know can can we survive with no topsoil and with carbon in the wrong spot Uh, and with uh, you know I mean, a, a litany of things. Can, can we afford to not change, I think, is as valid of a question is, you know, is, are there enough acres to produce enough food this way to feed the population? Are there, are there enough acres to not? So mm-hmm. you go. Kick it off, Will.
2: So we get that question a lot. And, and you know, my answer is that you know, the, the earth, nobody wants to face this fact. The earth has got a limited carrying capacity. There there can be too many of us. There may already be too many of us. I I don't know what that number is. And if we keep adding to the population exponentially, sooner or later it's going to break down. The system will break down. Now, I don't think any of us know how that breakdown is going to occur. But if if land is the first thing we run out of, the industrial factory farming system is a better system than than ours. It it will carry more people before it breaks down. If, If petroleum, fossil fuel is the limiting factor, my system's better. If water is a limiting factor, my system's better. If the things like magnesium and potassium and phosphorus that we mine reductively is what we run out of, my system's better. If antibiotics that the pathogens are not immune to, resistant to, uh, my system's better. Uh, Water, the the dead zone, the Gulf of Mexico, all these... uh, Negative unintended consequences are, uh, are, are weaknesses in which the system can break down. So, I can think of one way why the industrial system is better, and I can come up with dozens why ours will go further. So, I agree with Jenny. There, there is no system that
0: will feed as many people as we want to breed. Right. Have you ever done – so So I heard you answer that question uh, previously in a similar way. And I, I'm, I'm glad I heard it before because I wouldn't have been able to think of this kind of a follow-up if I hadn't. Have you ever – has anyone done the math on, okay, there are this many acres of potential farmland in the United States. It takes this much of an acre to feed one person for a year. Therefore, the maximum carrying capacity, if we're going to take care of ourselves, is this many people in the United States on farmland? On farmland, done the regenerative way, is is, is that out there anywhere?
2: Yeah, I've seen mean, I I a lot of people that have done that math in different ways with different results. But again, you just what you just said is if the land's a limiting factor, if you know, how much land would it take, mm-hmm. and and. Land probably isn't going to be the limited factor. I mean, we will probably run out of these over things before we run out of land. So, uh,
0: well, so, so what you're saying, I, I want to make sure that I, I, I make this, I want to tee this up for somebody who is listening. Because I've, it took me a few listens to fully understand what you're describing there. What it took for me to get to where I think you're, you're saying we need, you know, we need to be thinking is if the conventional farm needs more, by the way you described it, they need more water, they need more fuel, they need more minerals, they need more antibiotics. And so the day will likely come that we run out of the enough or we have too much scarcity of fuel, water, minerals or antibiotics to f- continue to source food from all of those conventional farms. That day will likely come sooner than we will run out of land on which we can serve all of the people, which means, theoretically, there will be conventional farms left vacant because they can no longer process their own foods. And that's where the scarcity would start to come from. Is, is that accurate?
2: Yeah, yeah, I think so. I, th- I think we're already seeing it. You know, we... <clears throat> Food, food is still wastefully abundant. What you is waste? So much food is obscenely cheap and wastefully abundant. But you know, we are. You know, there's a dead spot in the Gulf of Mexico. We're 80 miles from the Gulf of Mexico. There's a dead spot down there, it's as big as the state of Connecticut.
0: A dead spot you know, meaning no, no wildlife, no animals, no, yeah. no plant life, nothing.
2: So you know, so what you know, what that tells me is, yeah, you know, we can kill the ocean. We can. We already killed a pretty good chunk of it. That's a very small percentage of all the water on the face of the planet, but we've proven we can do it. How do we do that? Uh, pollutants coming down the, the rivers. Or in my case, Apalachicola River is one in the Gulf of Mexico where the Mississippi River spills in. And a large part, portion of that would be agricultural fertilizer and pesticides. Not all. There's some other stuff in there. But a large portion... Agricultural runoff. So, um, you know, the, the example I gave antibiotics, you know, they are, are you heard of antibiotics, SARS, antibiotic
0: resistant. Yes, yeah, it's, it's terrifying.
2: Yeah. And we only have so many antibiotics. And we, you know, we give them to animals, not therapeutically to get, make them well, but some of that, but not just sub therapeutically to make them grow better and keep them healthy in conditions that are not not necessarily
0: ideal. I want to be clear. You're talking about the collective we, not you at White Oak Pastures. I'm talking about humanity, correct. Yeah.
1: And subtherapeutic meaning uh, sick or not, everybody gets a dose of X so that they can eat an unnatural diet and live an unnatural lifestyle and not become ill. So therapeutic meaning treating an illness, sub-therapeutic meaning you
0: know, sick or not. So this is, this is sending light bulbs off for me. And as someone who studies this stuff and pays attention to this stuff, it's, it's interesting for me when I hear something in a way that I now understand something I didn't before what you're effectively saying there, Jenny, is when you feed an animal, a diet that is unnatural to what it's meant to eat, the likelihood of it getting sick goes up. And so it becomes reasonable for the rancher to feed that animal antibiotics prophylactically, Because they know if they don't, they're going to have animals that get sick and they're going to have loss.
1: Correct. They won't gain weight as quickly. They will die. They don't fit the model. They finish at a different time. You know, all types of variables. And again, industrial production is about control for efficiency. How do we... Using technology.
0: Well, again, when you all say technology, you don't just mean machines. You mean you mean devices, you mean machines, you mean chemicals, you mean all fertilizers, all kinds of stuff.
3: Mm.
0: How did we get here? How do we get, so how do we get to the point that the animal that we're eating is effectively sick from the moment that it's born until the moment that they kill it and put it on your plate?
1: I think the, 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 the easy answer is, uh, a a extreme focus on efficiency you know there the benchmark for success is you know uh, an animal hitting a target weight in a short amount of time you know the faster the animal reaches the weight the less money the less you know costly the creature is to carry the bigger the animal is the more pounds of meat produced at the end a sellable product and so i think We got here uh, because of the extreme silo focus on uh, very few benchmarks of success, just efficiency.
2: Uh, That's that's my answer. When when the only uh, metric that you're paying attention to is efficiency, Uh, you lose track of everything else. Mm -hmm. It's just shoes were siloed. That's exactly right. So, uh, we, we, we consider the way we manage our farm to be holistic. That is, everything's considered uh, very cyclical. Uh, the silo linear factory model is very different and it, it is uber efficient, incredible how efficient it is. Uh-huh. But it, in a living system that is cyclical, it will have unintended consequences.
0: Yeah. I, I saw um, a post you made a while back where you were bringing in a kind of beetle from somewhere else to kill off a kind of something else, a plant that you had that was invasive. Uh, and I, it took me back to, if I don't know if you've ever seen the documentary, The Biggest Little Farm, but they anyone who's seen it, there's a, a long scene where they talk about how, Oh, so then we brought in this animal to protect the, you know, the cows or the ducks from the coyotes. And then we brought this in for the coyotes. And then we had this for the ducks to eat. And it was, it was just, it was so interesting how it became an ecosystem unto itself.
2: Yeah. Complex complexity.
0: Yeah. Um, I remember a long time ago seeing you put something out that I thought was really, um, Interesting. And right now it's, it's right on the front of my brain and I've lost. Must have
1: not been that interesting. (laughs) No, it was.
0: I was trying to remember it while you guys were talking about the, um, the sick animals. Oh, there it is. This summer, there was this summer when we had the heat wave and all of those cattle in Arizona passed, they all died. And people started talking about how and I'm not asking you to be a climate change speculist. I I'm, have I'm, known nothing as it pertains to that, right? I'm, I'm, I'm no more than a headline reader as it pertains to climate change. And I'm not asking you to be either. At the time, there was a lot of outcry around, we're going to lose all of our livestock due to climate change. And you all were able to share, we didn't lose livestock, even though the heat went up. Can you talk about, do you remember what I'm describing here? Go ahead. See, I told you it was interesting, Jenny.
1: You were right. It was pretty <laughs> damn
0: interesting. Yeah. And I'll tell you
2: that deal about losing your train of thought. That's not going to get better. Just uh. so you.
0: <laughs> It goes the other way. If, if, if I can stay as focused and as clear as you, I'll, I'm good. <laughs>
1: At 68, I almost know. 69. I
0: know. 67, almost 68.
1: Oh, man. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so sorry. Let's
2: just be crystal clear on this. So sorry. <laughs> So uh, I do remember the incident you you're, you're talking about, and and for me that's not so much an indictment of climate change. I guess it is, but that's not that's not that's not my takeaway. <clears throat> my takeaway is the the way those animals were raised. You know those feedlot animals, which the the publication said were very near finished, so they're about at the end of their feeding period for slaughter. and That would be a... They, they would have, by design of the feedlot, uh, become a unnaturally a, a obese creature. It's probably dying of all the diseases of sedentary lifestyle and obesity and unnatural feed stuff that kills us. So... And the fact that those animals were in a feedlot, which mean, to me means not not shade, not not natural tree shade, not on grass, which has a cooling effect, you know, in a, in a place where it's hard to be during a, uh, a heat wave. So you take, uh, you know, who's most likely to succumb to heat stress? Uh, a six, if you were him. A, yeah, me and you. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm five foot eleven, weigh two thirty. You know, you're, you look, you look very trim and fit. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you, I'll I'll hit the dirt before you will, and you know, so it's a uh, it's more of an indictment to the health of the animal, and the environment we put them in, than it is of climate change. Now, you, do I believe in climate change? Yeah. But like you, I'm, I'm I'm a headline reader. You know, I I, I don't know do that.
0: Well, so I want to give people some context here. I don't remember the number, but what happened was back this summer. It was really hot for a while, and a large percentage of cattle in a particular area died.
1: They had I, heat strokes. It was a, it was a couple thousand head in a feedlot that 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 died of heat stroke.
0: Right, and. Were there other cattle in the same area on a regenerative piece of land or like, was there, do we know anything about that? It wasn't in the
1: headline if it was
0: right. And so the argument being made was all of these cows die as a result of climate change. And what you all talked about was maybe, maybe. Um, But what about these other factors that we're not considering, right? They don't have access to trees. They're not a healthy animal the day that the that the heat wave comes. They're not living on a piece of land that is naturally cooler because it's covered in grass and darker dirt that's that's not reflecting that heat right back up to them. Uh, all of these different things. I just found that so interesting because it was it was a really good example of the sustainability we talked about earlier, Will, where you know what if what if the resource is cool air.
1: Yeah, it um there there are other farmers and I, I want to k- get on this trend this summer but have gone out into uh you know not regenerative pastures and taken the temperature of the soil and it being something like 20 to 30 degrees hotter than in the middle of a pasture even with no trees covered in grass 20 to and 30 other- degrees. And another 10 degrees if you get down in the bottom of the woods. So we're talking about like a 30 degree, 30 plus degree spread between, you know, a, a, you know, dead mineral medium soil with little organic matter and no grass, no trees to what could potentially be a 30 degree difference in, you know, woods with natural shade.
0: Well, and for people who have no experience farming or gardening at all, that might mean very little. But I can share with you, there There are certain crops that I wait until, for example, July to plant because the soil needs to be a given temperature before those crops are likely to proliferate.
1: Well, I mean, and everybody knows the difference between 100 degrees and 70 degrees. I mean, your your mm-hmm. wardrobe's different, completely different with 100 degrees and 70 degrees. Think about 100 degrees being really hot on a hot summer day. 70 degrees is where you might sleep with it under the covers, uh, mm-hmm. in your house. That's right. the difference.
0: And and animals are living on that land and plants are trying to live on that land. That's wild. And now what, you know, I have a, uh, a friend of mine who's also a well-respected doctor. I don't know if you've ever heard of her. Her name is Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, but one of the things that she taught you, you've heard of her, you nodding your head. All yeah. right. There's a win. See, we got, we got a common friend here. Um, <laughs> She talks about We don't need
1: a common I know, friend.
0: I know. I appreciate that, but it's nice to have a common friend too. Um, and it's, and it's a small town. I'm sorry. What was that? It's a small town. It is a small town. This, this country, uh, I'll be speaking with her in about two weeks, but, um, she talks about, you know, things like the incredible burger, impossible burger, whatever they call it. She lists all the ingredients and then she lists – she likes to make these posts. She'll put a piece of beef and she's like, ingredients, beef. And I have heard you talk about the carbon impact of foods that are not naturally occurring because one of the things that people talk about regularly is – methane pollution, you know, the animal consumption, the need to transport them across state lines and all these kinds of stuff. If, if that's what you're doing for sustainability purposes and for profit. Uh, and I've heard you talk about the, the way that your your land is able to sequester carbon. And I would love for you to explain to people what that means.
2: So I'll reference a study that was done. it's on our website, on uh, whiteopastor.com under the uh, environmental
1: uh, regeneration
2: land regeneration tab land stewardship tab and uh, it was done by a uh, environmental engineering group called Qantas international group Uh, it is a very expensive study here on this farm somebody that's paid for it gentlemen and it showed that we uh have moved our uh, organic matter level in the soil from one half of 1% to over 5%.
0: What does that mean, organic matter? What does that mean, organic matter in the soil? The amount of carbon in the soil.
2: Okay. And, and you know, we, uh, I don't want to, uh, So I think we talk about carbon way too much.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I think that it's, it's important, but a lot of other things equally as important. We can talk about that later if you want to. But uh, carbon is fairly easy to use as a guide for soil health. And in my mind, that's what this is. So uh, uh, if you, uh, an acre slice of soil, I think, is uh, 2 million pounds. That's one acre, six, eight inches deep. It's 2 million pounds. So if we've gone from uh five and a half percent five and a half percent that's five percent that's a hundred thousand pounds of carbon per acre that we've put into the soil but we didn't add any carbon we didn't go to the carbon store and buy some carbon and bring it and put it out there we didn't do that all of that carbon used to be greenhouse gas used carbon dioxide and whatever else is up there and plants in our case the uh, grasses and forbs in our pasture breathe in that gaseous carbon that's said to be causing global warming, I believe it is, climate climate change. It breathes it in and turns it into solid and liquid carbon in the form of protein and uh, uh, sugar and, and, and fats in the plant. And some of that carbon is below the surface of the land. So this is the surface. Roots down here have a lot of that carbon. The rest, lot, the rest of it is up here in form of foliage, forage. And you know, the plant grows, the of photosynthesis grows every day in its season. And we graze it. And when we graze it, that cow or sheep or goat bites off that forage on top. And when they do, they cause that root to start to atrophy or slough off under the ground. It won't die completely, but there's not enough photosynthesizing tissue of life to feed it. So that, that carbon is sequestered under the ground. And that part that the cow or sheep or goat ingests, some of it goes to make beef or, or lamb or goat that we eat. Or use a skin or hooves or whatever, bones. Some of it goes back down on the earth in the form of manure, which is a very liquid uh, insect feed and microbe feed, not liquid like solid, liquid gas, liquid like cash, currency, ready to go into the soil. Available. Available. Mm -hmm. That's the word. And then some of it is given up in uh, flatulence or bel- belching or farting or whatever. And that's what you hear all the focus on. Well, you know, a certain percentage of it is put back up through that that belching. But it all came from up there. You know, uh, ca- Carbon is an element on periodic charge. I mean, there's so much of it here. It's a finite amount. And it's supposed to cycle. But, you know, this, uh, what we've done for the last 80 years with fossil fuels, just putting it up, putting it up, putting it up. And it has not not been a healthy cycle. The healthy cycle is ruined animals grazing grass and forest
1: which allows carbon to cycle. You know, we've been on open discharge, putting it up as opposed to, let's just say a third belch, a third liquid through manure, a third sloughs. And it's not like that, but uh, only a third in that scenario is going back up. In a three-part series, only one part's returning, mm-hmm. two parts are staying down.
0: Right. As opposed to, uh, as opposed to a place that can't keep the land. where. That's right. Where where it's all up.
2: Uh. I'm going to be bold enough to tell you that this this thing about rumored animals destroying the earth when they're raised when they're raised properly is junk freaking science. Uh-huh. Junk freaking science. I I could say it more plainly if my daughter wasn't here. <laughs> but it uh and it's incredible to me as a practitioner how much traction that Cows are destroying the Earth has gotten over the last decade. It's amazing.
0: Do you think? Do you think that's because people genuinely believe it, or do you think it's because people have an agenda where they don't want cows being eaten, and this is a way that they can get other people easily on board?
1: B. Mm-hmm. I think they're invested in an alternative yes. that might carry might carry bigger profits.
0: Right. I, I
2: think I think you had a perfect storm where you had uh, a, a, a militant. Vegan, vegetarian influence. Now, when I say militant, people who won't, who choose not to eat meat, I'm on their side. People who won't choose what I eat is are the militant people. Right, that's the woman
0: on the boardwalk. I was down for the argument with. That's right.
2: So you take uh, uh, that predisposition of a certain percentage of the people I buy It's not a big percentage, but the, the militant people, uh, vegans and vegetarians. You add to that the uh, incredible amount of money that's in the vegetable uh, protein business. Tremendous, tremendous financial incentive to demonize red meat. And then you add to that the fact that the industrial model has given them something to point at.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And it's just a perfect storm. And it's amazing to me the amount of traction it's gotten.
3: I'm
2: afraid we're doing the same thing with carbon right now. I'm afraid that's happening again.
0: Well, because it's so... It's easy to say meat is bad for you. It's hard to explain why all meat is not created equal and some meat is bad for you. Those are... Those it is way easier to make a blanket statement than a nuanced one because the nuanced one requires the question after the question after the question and the interest in the conversationalists to learn meat is bad for you. Well, that's, that's easy. I can just take red meat out of my diet. Um, this is probably a question you don't get asked very often, but as a New Yorker, who's never actually stood next to a cow, is there any sort of, uh interpersonal interspecies, whatever it is, relationship that grows where you start to feel for the animal that you that you're about to take to slaughter
2: uh, absolutely uh, you, you use the word nuanced uh, so most people in New York on, that's just an example you use. most people who are apart from nature, the only relationship, the only animal relationship. They know is the one they have with their companion on, I think
0: and you, then they they love. I think, love
2: it. I think love you got a phone works.
0: vibrating on your desk. I think.
2: Yeah,
1: we're. I'm gonna end that.
0: It's all good. So good. I'm sorry. You want to start over. Please. So you
2: you mentioned <clears throat> New Yorkers, but I'll say that <clears throat> the any any uh, consumer who is out of contact with nature urban people uh the only animal relationship that they understand or they are familiar with or that they have is the relationship they have the relationship they have with their companion animal their dog or cat or whatever pet it is and and in that case it's very close to a human relationship <clears throat> in our case Those of us who live in nature, we have many, many different animal relationships. You know, I I got a companion animal. I got a dog named Judge that's, you know, my friend. I mean, I treat him like a a, a person. If he gets sick, I'll spend a fortune on him to to make him healthy again. When he dies, I'll mourn him. Uh, I also have livestock and I have a completely different relationship with them. I've also got wildlife. I got bees. I got working animals like horses and guardian dogs. I got microbes in the soil that are, I have a relationship with. So it's very nuanced. I have a very different relationship with every one of those living creatures. And, and the urban person only has the companion animal relationship. I mean, if you got a, a wife and a mother and a sister You got a different daughter and a daughter, and maybe a girlfriend and a wife. I don't know what you got. (laughs) But but if you've got those different relationships, gender relationships, every one of them is different. Mm -hmm. And you understand that. But the person who only has a relationship with a dog may not understand or probably won't understand our relationship with all these different, it's much more complex Mm -hmm. For, for us. Well, I told you if my dog gets sick, I'll spend a lot of money keeping him alive. We, we're about to start calving now. We're really excited about the calving season. It starts technically next week. And yeah, one little premature one so far, but next week. I'm anxious to, to 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 slaughter the previous calf crop to make room for the new calf crop. It's a it's a it's a it's a, a river, not a lake.
0: Mm-hmm. Flow through. That's what you're saying. They, they, they flow through as a, as a cycle. It's interesting. Everything in nature cycles, it's not linear. Well, one of the things I, I, I'll share with you is some of the most valuable things I've learned from just following your Instagram account. And I think, Jenny, you're the one running it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You do a masterful job. Because some of the valuable things I've learned from there are things I was ignorant to when I was younger, and not not in a negative way. I just had legitimate ignorance to it. Like, for example, why would anybody put a cowhide on a chair? Why would anybody put a cowhide on a floor? Because it's not that comfortable to sit on for those people who haven't sat on a cowhide. But that aside, it always felt to me like, oh, that's a that's a gluttonous use of an animal, and it. It's your content where you share things like, look, we value the life of the animals on this farm in such a way that we're going to use every last bit of them to respect the life that they lived instead of discarding it as waste. Uh, That opened my eyes to a whole different way of looking at the human relationship with, with livestock and with animals that we eat. And so I want to thank you for that
1: appreciate you uh uh, you know appreciating that content you know one of dad's heroes has always been george washington carver and he uh so beautifully said that in nature there is no waste and so you know one of our missions is closing the loops you know in in you know industrial you know commodity farming there there is waste you know there's a, a they're called byproducts and for us we don't have any byproducts we just have products uh and that's That's one of the things that I think makes a relationship with a farmer so special. You know, the same uh, animal that you probably buy from your local rancher Stephen, you know, he's got to do something with the hides. You know, he has to do something with the bones. He has to do something with the organs, and so. You know, you probably wear leather shoes or a leather belt or have a leather wallet. You know, it just it allows uh, the use of the animal to be so much more embedded in our daily lives. Um, you know that that it's it's special to
2: us. And the again, I'm back on the cycle: birth, growth, death, decay. Birth, growth, death, decay. Birth, growth. It it's it's supposed to work that way. Are, I tell them that. Everything that this, this makes me feel a bit better about death. So, uh, everything that has ever lived dies, whether that's me or you or microbes or roaches or sequoias. If you ever live, you, you're going to die. And every bit of nutrition that every living creature gets comes from eating something that has died before it. Whether you're a vegetarian or a microbe or you, know, you, you, you ingest, Something that used to be alive, and in a healthy ecosystem, nothing stays dead long because birth, growth, death, decay.
0: You're speaking to the the finite amount of energy, right? We, you know, it's it's the same energy that was here a million years ago, just in different form, being birth, grown, killed, decayed, birth, grown, killed, decayed. And I, I've actually thought about that myself and it, it, in a weird way, it makes me more comfortable with my mortality. Also the idea that I'm not, you know, when, when I'm gone, I'm, I'm gone in one form and I evolve into several others and many, 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 many more over time. Jenny will, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you and I, I, you know, if 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 I was out in Bluffton, Georgia, and you would sit in a chair long enough, I'd probably talk until we all fell asleep. Or I'd listen, I should say, until we all you fell asleep. You can do asleep.
1: that. We got cabins. We, you can yeah, do that.
0: I know. I know. I've 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 considered it. I promise you. And Stephen, the rancher I I, I buy from, has has wanted to come down and take some of your courses. Also, he's uh, he asked me if I wanted to come out and take a course with him. So I'm not sure if. Yeah, so- I, would,
2: I, would, I would
0: welcome. you. I appreciate that. Um, what I was going to ask is. Are the courses that you teach for farmers and ranchers appropriate for people who have no interest in farming and ranching at any kind of scale?
2: Yeah, we founded a uh, a nonprofit last year, a 501C3 called uh, Center for Agricultural Resilience. And it's actually for non, primarily for non-farmers. And Jenny is the chairman of the board of directors. I'm going to let her tell you how that works.
1: So CIFAR was founded to disseminate the information that we have learned over the past 30 years. So uh, CIFAR is the the educational arm for regenerative farming using white oak pastures as the lab. And so we have a few different types of courses. The uh, sort of the maiden course was the fundamentals of regenerative agriculture. Uh, We do that six times a year every other month. Um, We also have some pretty farmer specific courses, um, one being the immersive introduction to regenerative ag, and that's pretty production centric. You would probably take interest in it because you, uh, you know, you're, you're in this industry. You have interest in the way animals are raised and processed. But that would likely be a little less interesting from a consumer perspective. It's pretty production centric. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're adding a few other courses in 2023, uh, you know, some beekeeping classes, um, you know, gardening, really anything that, uh, you know, that, that we can do to educate others on the, uh, you know, rethinking the food system uh, is, is, you know, sort of how we define CFAR.
0: It's awesome. I'm glad you're doing it. And can people find the information about that stuff on your website?
1: Yes. So our website is whiteoakpastures.com. Instagram is whiteoakpastures, Facebook, whiteoakpastures. We don't do much on Twitter, but that's just White Oak pasture because we ran out of characters. So mm-hmm. uh, just one pasture there. Um, but there's a link to CFAR on, on our website.
0: All right. Well, I'm inspired by the work that you are, that you're doing. It it taught me, it changed the way that I live. It changed the way that I help people who wants to change the way that they live around me. My, my parents, my sister, my wife, like we are all healthier because of the work that you all are putting in. And I wanted to express my appreciation for that.
1: Thank you for being uh, one of the consumers to to push this thing forward. I mean, you are the one that's taking your time, your resources to invite us to build this podcast and then broadcast out to to your followers. You you're the necessary link to move this ball farther down the field. So, well,
0: we're playing the game together. That's good. Thank you, Harris. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Active Live Podcast. Please remember. Give us a hand, rate it, review it, wherever you listen to shows. We are on a mission to humanize the healthcare industry by professionalizing the fitness industry to empower the individual to live a life unlimited by the way that their body looks, feels, or performs. If you are inspired by that mission and want to jump on the wagon, find us anywhere, Active Life Professional on Instagram, Active Life Rx on Instagram, come to me personally at Dr. Sean Pastuch. We want to welcome you onto the train. We want you to be a part of the mission. We want to offer you the opportunity to pursue this right alongside us. We're inspired by your effort, and we hope to help you in your journey. Turn bro.